6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 43. The Milky Way, if you get a chance to be on the desert or on a particularly clear night in the mountains or in the desert or at sea for that matter, you'll see a band of stars that is just, you can't help, no matter how, it just takes your breath away. He says here about the entire universe, let's just focus on those stars that are part of our little system, our galaxy. Not the universe, our galaxy. Huh? 100,000 million stars. He calls them all by names. The same thing is said in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. Right? If you took just the Milky Way to count the stars, and you counted one per second, it would take you 2,500 years. Oh, my God is probably the right phrase. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like it better that way. That's our Lord. He created them. And we sort of figure like, gee, sand at the seashore. No, wait a minute. He calls them all by name. that breathtaking? And that's just the Milky Way. I mean, we could go beyond, but we're already beyond our comprehension level. <laughs> and how much more are you worth to him than the stars? See, I believe when you hear the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, I can't prove the scriptures, Chuck Missler's conjecture. I believe what you're going to hear is your name. See, I think he's going to call you personally at the rapture. He did that with Lazarus, didn't he? That wasn't a resurrection body, don't misunderstand me. But Lazarus come forth, right? Why do you say Lazarus? If he hadn't, they all would have come forth, right? <laughs> Why is it we can visualize that, huh? <laughs> you see, there's some that are going to wait a thousand years. Or according to Revelation, huh? So he's going to, I believe he's going to call you by name. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know his bandwidth is infinite. He calleth them by names, the stars. By the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power. What an understatement that is. Not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due to me is passed away from my God. It's being facetious. See, and he catches in both ways. O Jacob, O Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and uh, in general in the scripture, when someone's name is changed, it stays changed. Saul becomes Paul, and so forth, right? Abraham becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. There's a couple of exceptions. Jacob is one of them. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. But from that point on, 
It's a jumble. Sometimes it's called Jacob, sometimes Israel. But when you study the scripture carefully, you'll notice that the name is always chosen to fit the occasion. When he's in the flesh, when he's carnal, it's Jacob. On those moments when he's showing some class, it's Israel. And the nation also. Oh, Jacob, oh, Israel, right? And you and I should take comfort that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God can justify Jacob. He can justify Chuck Missler. I take a lot of comfort in that. Here he's bracketing it. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, that justice due to me is passed away from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Psalmist says, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He giveth power to the faint, and to those who have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. How many of you heard that before? Familiar passage. I want you to notice something. You look at you. Here's Isaiah, the richest vocabulary in the Old Testament, the highest level of Hebrew writing, according to the experts, right? Isaiah. And boy, did he blow it here. Because it's not in the climactic order, is it? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, right? It's backwards. Or is it? Or is it? See, he says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The more you think about that, you realize that order is the appropriate one. You see, if I asked you tonight, let's assume that if I asked you to leave this room and the minute you step outside that door, they're going to shoot you. You got a chance to die for Christ. There's probably not one of you that would hesitate. You had a chance to die for the Lord. Here's your moment of truth. Let's get on with it. You'd swallow hard and go at it, wouldn't you? Let me tell you what's tougher than dying for the Lord. That's living for him. Right? See, the thing isn't life after death, it's life after birth. See? You're born again? Okay, you know. And see, the thing is, mounting up with wings as eagles. Hey, I'm ready for that. That's exciting. Let's go for it. And then they shall run and not be weary. Okay. What's the real test? To walk and not faint. Endurance. The Christian walk. Not the race, the run, the flying of the eagles, the walk. Yes, they'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, the Christian walk is a marathon. The Christian walk's a marathon. It's the staying. On your power, no, you haven't got a chance. On his, absolutely. And boy, it's tough for us to keep relearning that. Chapter 41, keep silence before me, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them like the dust to his sword and like the driven stubble to his bow. It's in the past tense, but it's prophetic. It's speaking, I believe, of an interesting guy that we're going to learn a lot about in a couple chapters from now. A guy that rises to power, conquers the known world. His main adversary was a city-state called Babylon that ruled the world at that time. He has his general shrewdly 
take this place apart, conquers the place without a battle, makes his triumphal entry 17 days later. And when he arrives, one of the things he's confronted with is an old man, older man, by the name of Daniel, who shows him a scroll from Isaiah. He finds a letter written to him by name, written 150 years earlier. Hey, Cyrus, here's your career. Here's how you're going to rise to power. Here's the strategy by which you're going to conquer Babylon. And I'm calling you by name so you'll know that I'm the God of Israel. Cyrus was impressed. And he, as a result, releases the Jews and so forth. We're going to start hearing about Cyrus. Isaiah is almost like a symphony. We have a little hint, and then it'll be developed, and then it comes in crashing through in chapter 45. Who raised up the righteous man. Strange word. The righteous man from the east. Called him to his foot. Gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. He gave them like the dust to his sword and driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought it and done it? Calling generations from beginning. I the Lord. The first and the last. I am he. Is that a familiar phrase? You betcha. Twice at least in Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, it's in the Greek, and that's, of course, the A to the Z in our language. Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, from Isaiah. Same, same phrase here, verse 4. I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. Somehow I get a big kick when I hear God lay it out. The coast saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped every one his neighbor, and every one said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with a hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. He fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. <laughs> I always love this, with Abraham, my friend. One of the titles, Abraham has a number of titles in the Bible, one of the most interesting titles is the friend of God. Because of this phrase, Abraham my friend. Interesting expression for God to use. To the best of my knowledge, it's the only person that is spoken of exactly that way. Don't misunderstand me, I'm saying others were not, not he's not the only one that was his friend, but it's the only one of which it's expressed that way. Abraham's my friend. And that's linked to Genesis 18 with the three visitors, the Lord and two angels. Shall I not show Abraham what I'm about to do? Part of the friendship relationship was a disclosure of the future. The concept of friendship was linked to the idea of showing Abraham what was coming. Does it in Genesis 18? Also in Genesis 22, Abraham offers Isaac, but he names the place Jehovah Jireh. In the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Abraham named Mount Moriah prophetically. He knew he was acting out prophecy. 2,000 years later, some Romans on that very spot erected three crosses, and another father offered his son. That's exciting. But it's interesting that that theme, that idea, that use of idiom carries over the New Testament. Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, 15, 16, upper room discourse. Jesus says to them, you have been my servants. Henceforth, you will be called my friends. And what's that associated with? In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Again, disclosing to his friends the future. Hmm? Going one step further than being a friend is to be beloved. There's one prophet in the Old Testament that is spoken of as the beloved. Gabriel calls him that in Daniel 9 when he gives him the 70 weeks. Daniel, you are greatly beloved. Who's the beloved prophet? Daniel. Who's the apocalyptic prophet, the prophet that describes the end times like no other prophet does? Daniel. New Testament. We've got 12 disciples. One of those disciples is known as the beloved disciple. Who's that? 
John. And who wrote the apocalyptic book in the New Testament? John. No big deal, but the consistency there intrigues me. It's one of these subtle evidences. I like to call it the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. You somehow see his imprimatur on that, his style, the same terms, the same idioms. The uh, New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Yes, that's thematic, but I think it goes far beyond that. The very use of idiom, every number, every place name, every detail is there by design. Anyway, enough of this. Back on to verse 9. Thou, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. (laughs) I like that. How many people are there trying to tell you that God has cast away Israel? Paul spends three chapters in the book of Romans hammering the fact that Israel is not cast away. God has a future for it. Yet there are people that appear on television and talk shows and stuff that try to deny that. Fascinating. I have not cast thee away. Fear thou not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Not your righteousness, my righteousness. And aren't you glad? Boy. I don't care how good your walk is, I don't care how spiritually mature you might be. Aren't you glad that it's his righteousness? that he's looking to, not ours. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with thee shall perish. This is an elaboration of Genesis 12, verse 3. The covenant he made with Abraham that was unconditional and reconfirmed in any case. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Interesting. That's true today. Let's watch and see. Thou shalt seek them and shalt not find them, even them that contend with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. (laughs) Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, (laughs) and ye handful of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Whoops, wait a minute. All through Isaiah we'll see this. It's never singular, it's always a duet or a trio. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That sounds like more than one guy, doesn't it? Imagine that. Thy Redeemer, the word is Goel in the Hebrew. The word Goel is the kinsman Redeemer. And we've studied the book of Ruth. We've studied Revelation chapter 5. We know that the one that taketh the seven-sealed book from the right hand who sits on the throne is our Goel. He has to be a kinsman of Adam. He's our kinsman Redeemer. And that whole theme, that whole idea is exemplified in our study of the book of Ruth. Get the tapes and review it if that's not comfortable with you. But what we all miss is the kinsman redeemer had two roles, at least. One role is the Leverite marriage. He takes a Gentile bride, and Boaz does in the book of Ruth. You remember that? He also restores the land to Naomi, typologically Israel. No problem with that. But there's another role of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. He is the avenger of blood. He is the avenger of blood. And that will be his role on his next coming. 
He had two comings. First coming, aimed at a cross 2,000 years ago, our kinsman redeemer. His next coming is as the avenger of blood. And Isaiah is going to talk lots about that before we're through. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thrash the mountains and beat them small and shalt make the hills like chaff. Thou shalt fan them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water there and there is none and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers in high places, the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree and the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Speaks for itself, doesn't it? Let me give you a couple other comments. The cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, uh, the olive tree, the fir, and so on. These trees are interesting trees because, first of all, they're indigenous to Judea. What's intriguing about this passage is there are a number of trees that show up in the Scripture after the Babylonian exile, after the captivity, because they were acquainted with other trees. And what's fascinating about the vocabulary of Isaiah, you can demonstrate that the language itself demonstrates its articulation prior to the Babylonian captivity. That's another disastrous destruction of the critics that would attack this book. Subtleties in the language demonstrate its time in history. And that's an example of it. There's All those trees exclude, if you will, trees that are outside Judea later that are brought back from Babylon and what have you. Small point. Now, I love the next few verses because it's one of these places that's, what's the right term? Sarcastic, perhaps. God challenges the evil spirits. I always enjoy these for some perverse reason. God says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things and what they are, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good and do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught, and abomination is he who chooses you. <laughs> Don't have to add anything to that, do we? It's interesting the challenge he gives them to, to the idols. If you're gods, tell us what's going to happen in the future. See, they can't. They can't. I'm always amused. People come up to me, what about Nostradamus, Gene Dixon, all this stuff? Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Gene Dixon's the fun one because she gets some of her uh, visions from a snake. And I, so Walter Martin used to always kid about it. Last time a woman talked to a snake, we all got in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> but she's credited with having predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy. That's utter rubbish. She also predicted Nixon win the election, so she re-predicted that it was Nixon that was going to get shot. Other than that, she's right on target. Ha, ha, ha. Prophets of God are 100% right 100% of the time. And that's a tough record. The false prophets are right 1% or 2% of the time, sometimes. I mean, it's just a joke. And yes, I've been through some of these. I do some homework just to do the homework, but it's really boring because it's rubbish and nonsense. Most of them are so ambiguous that they're meaningless anyway. 
But uh, these people who make the uh, allegations, you check them out and they fall apart. No, the false prophets are just what they are, false prophets. God himself demonstrates that he is God by, in fact, describing things before they happen. He did so through history and he does so today. He predicted not only that Israel would be regathered in the land, he predicted the very day that would be declared a state, May 14th of 1948, by analyzing Ezekiel 4 and Leviticus 26 and all through, I took you through that. It describes the exact day that Israel would regain the biblical city of Jerusalem. He describes Babylon being rebuilt. He describes Russia, the Republic of Russia, arming a group of nations to invade Israel. And they're getting ready to do that. He describes Europe emerging as the final world empire, a global empire. He describes the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's all there. It's all happening. Shouldn't surprise us. And yet we watch that and it's just breathtaking. Because God demonstrates that he's outside time altogether. He demonstrates he is who he is by calling the shots up front, precisely, to every subtle detail. He predicts the exact day that Jesus Christ has presented himself as the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the King. The very day. Jesus held him accountable to know that day. And he lays out history in detail. And what's exciting is we're watching it all come to fruition. Exciting. Back to these idols. Behold, ye are of nothing in your work of naught. An abomination is he who chooses you. <laughs> I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name, and he shall come upon the princes as upon... Uh, mortar, and as the potter treadeth the clay, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, He is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your words. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor that, when asked, I asked of them, could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing, they're melted and cast images, are wind and confusion. It says it all. Let's keep moving, we're on a roll. <laughs> the uh, next four verses are quoted in Matthew chapter 12, incidentally. Behold my servant whom I behold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. And he shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. It's interesting how Isaiah hammers away all through here the blessing, not on Israel alone, on the nations, on the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth justice in truth. Jesus, of course, was the servant. What Isaiah is starting to build here, again, it's like a symphony. We're introducing another theme. Softly at first, it's going to reach its crescendo in chapter 53. The suffering servant. If Israel had done their homework, they fixated on the promises of the Messiah, the king, the ruler, and they expected him to throw off the yoke of Rome. They were so fixated on it, they missed the prophecies that he was also going to show up in a different role. The suffering servant, the obedient unto death. It's all here. And in many copies of the Old Testament, they removed Isaiah 53. But if you go to Israel, to the shrine of the book they're so proud of, and you see the Dead Sea Scrolls laid out, 
There's the complete scroll of Isaiah, and right in the middle, guess what? Isaiah 53. It's sort of like a, you know, a symphony. You're starting to introduce another theme. It's starting to build here. Behold my servant whom I behold, uphold. And certainly he's upheld by the Father. John 5. Mine elect in 1 Peter 2, 6. Okay. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. He shall cry and not lift up, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoke fla- smoking flax shall he not quench. We're talking about uh, uh, trimming a lamp. It's an idiom that's unfamiliar to us, but it has to do with feeble lights being trimmed properly. He will not burn so dimly, nor be bruised, in other words. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, he sh- he- till he have set justice in the earth, and the coasts shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he who giveth breath unto the people upon it and the spirit to them that walk in it. Gives breath to the people. That's interesting. You know, most of us, I think, perceive the process of life as something he designed and organized, but it sort of continues. And as we study the DNA molecule, we're flabbergasted to discover, first of all, it's a digital code that your entire genetic history and everything about you is described in a digital code that's in every molecule in your body, in the DNA molecule. Fascinating study. But the key things you learn from that, number one, it's a digital code. Digital code implies there has to be a language designed first, and then a mechanism to embody that language and a mechanism to manipulate that language. It's like a sender and a receiver. You have to design them both before they work. can't evolve. This cannot evolve. It has to be designed. The fact that DNA is a digital code has destroyed evolution. Any competent observer now realizes that the biogenesis is an absurd hypothesis. But it's worse than that. If you take a sperm and an egg and they fertilize to become a zygote, you look under the microscope and you watch them, what happens? Mitosis takes place, the, the two cells divide into two identical cells. And those two into four. And they're identical, right? They keep dividing. Mitosis, 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 more and more cells. But then as we watch, something bizarre happens. Up till now, they're identical. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.